welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a backup for cycling, for sure. The struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everybody, welcome back. Today marks exactly one year of podcasting. It has been one of the most interesting years, sometimes stressful, but mostly it's been fantastic. And the lessons to me are obvious, just in listening to the maturation process of each episode from the early ones where it's completely obvious that I'm proceeding without a compass to finding my voice and confidence in later episodes. There was a lot to learn this first year. I mean, even talking with friends, there's an innate awkwardness to planned conversation, right? I think it's loosely based on stage fright and that fear of public speaking. And on a deeper unconscious level, I think it requires a new level of trust to be established as the friendship journeys into a new direction that deepens the ties. And wow, I know I've said this a million times already, and I'm going to keep saying it. I have got extraordinary people in my life. In fact, this podcast kind of started out, I guess, as an experimental project. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do, but in those early days, the road was still pretty nebulous and murky. What was crystal clear, however, were the remarkable traits and experiences and skills, the perspectives among my friends. You know how when you love someone, you get all giddy and just want to shout it to the world that this person is so marvelous, everyone's got to stop and take notice. And love is one of those emotions, right? That can be ascribed distinct values. I mean, there's romantic love, love of children, parents, cousins. I just saw my cousin this weekend and I love spending time with her. Love of pets, love of trees, which Tamara Madison and I talked about in episode 39. I mean, there's even love for actions like hiking or meditating or cooking, gardening, and even for inanimate objects, right? Like the ones that we ascribe deep meaning to. And the list is endless. Then there's love of friends. And they are the amazing individuals that you've either chosen to have in your life, or they've chosen you as part of theirs. And of course, within all of these categories, the depth of each type of love can be bottomless. So this podcast is a dedicated tribute to friendship and my deep appreciation and gratitude to the amazing people that bring so much meaning and happiness to my life. But again, like I said, it all sounds fantastic, right? But making a podcast happen is another story. I guess I had to feel my way through each celebration of a friend, which in turn helped me celebrate the next friend better. And 
I took copious notes of what worked and what didn't quite meet my expectations. It didn't matter what part of the process it was, whether it was the preparation, the talk itself, post-production. It's kind of surprising how many moving parts there are in producing an episode, really. And a lot of them aren't even entirely intuitive either. So like technique is an endless process of tweaking and therefore it's a never ending learning process as well, right? I've definitely got a long way to go, but the countless hours that I poured into this labor of love not only paid off every time with dedicated time spent with the people that I love and admire, but... (laughs) I won gold for general interview talk show and the Davy Awards, y'all. I mean, I am proud of my work, but in my wildest dreams, I never envisioned earning such an honor and definitely not in my first year of podcasting. I think that I take that award as a sign that I'm on track for meeting one of my goals, which is to provide relatable yet extraordinary stories that inspire, motivate, maybe even empower listeners to take a look at their lives and pinpoint those extraordinary accomplishments and moments that they probably take for granted. I mean, the most repeated comment to me when I approach a friend to be on this program is, I'm not interesting. I mean, just like that, every single time, I'm not that interesting. And it blows me away because these are people that I find vastly interesting and love them for that. And if one year of amazing conversations is proof of anything, it's that you are more remarkable than you believe. And I think that's something that really needs to be identified and nurtured and cultivated because there's empowerment in identifying and examining accomplishments as your own, especially in this ultra-competitive world that we live in. It's kind of become a sport or a pastime, right? One person proving that they have the most toys or money, the best looks or lifestyle or the fastest car. It's not only an attempt at intimidation, but really it's fears being projected as success. So finding your strengths and accomplishments and confirming to yourself, I am a badass, goes a long way in establishing your right to love and respect yourself and even to, you know, spread good vibes to others and crush your next goal. And I hope that these stories do some of that. So to that end, please join me in this second medley of episodes as I revisit some of the most highly rated and commented on episodes of the past year. Before we get started, please be aware that a couple of these clips are difficult to listen to despite their amazing endings. And I often say, and I have many sayings, but this is one of them, that what society values are survivors the ones who persevere and make it despite the odds. Victims, on the other hand, just aren't valued. And I think that is such a shame and a sad commentary on how the world works. Because by design, survivors were once victims who had the strength and resilience and courage to rise up, right? And that is another reason why you need to identify and own your accomplishments 
fair hemmed in by your perseverance and sacrifices and strengths. And they illustrate your power. And each one is a remarkable story of your life journey. So please grab a cuppa and join me and my friends, Asian recording artist, Soup Fa, retired Coast Guard hospital corpsman, senior chief petty officer, Walter McKinley Lewis, director of education at the Los Angeles Arboretum, Brooke Applegate, writer and deep thinker, Chris Sullivan, poet, Tamara Madison, yoga teacher, therapist, and life coach, Maureen Deering Davis, musician and activist, Stephen J. Morris, and Dr. Stacy Battencourt, who is an arbitrator, mediator, and life coach in these various and wonderful In the Company of Friends talks. Up first is my talk from episode 31 with my dear friend, Soup Fa, who is a recording artist, entertainment TV host, trusted ambassador to the royal family of Cambodia, a humanitarian and an amateur historian of Southeast Asia. Please be aware that this clip does carry a warning as it covers his father being a survivor of the brutal Khmer Rouge invasion of Cambodia. So it is hard to listen to in its honesty and devastation of the Cambodian genocide, which occurred under Pol Pot's dictatorship between 1975 and 1979. So I'm super excited to be here to share my story and to jump into details about what's going on in the world and what's specifically going on in Cambodia. So I'm really happy to dig deep into that with Sylvia here. Yeah, let's get into that because last night, as I shared with you earlier, I started to watch They Killed My Father First, Mm -hmm. which was about the Khmer Rouge invasion of Cambodia. And what it really made me realize is that I don't think people think about Cambodia and the other countries as much because when we talk about the war in Southeast Asia, it is always Vietnam. And Cambodia, of course, is one of the bordering countries. It is a country that got a lot of the brunt of that war, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, there was a casualty of about 20,000 I want to make a correction. The figure is actually between 1.5 and 3 million people who were killed during the Khmer Rouge. Yes, definitely a a fact. Um, A lot of the people that were executed were doctors and nurses and um, intellects, aristocrats, musicians. Because what happened in the Khmer Rouge was the Pol Pot came into being because he wanted to bring Cambodia back to its original state, which was just farmers and having no education, no music influence from outside countries. So, you know, France and Europe was such a huge influence, including America, on the music scene in Cambodia. It became like a rock nation, and they were singing a lot of rock and roll music and blues, and he didn't like the influence of that coming into the country. So he made this story about Americans invading Cambodia at the time, so everyone rushed to the countryside, and they were threatened by stories of bombing, which were just rumors by the Khmer Rouge, to get everyone out of the city so they can have more control over the people. 
So one by one, people were getting executed in the countryside. People were getting murdered and killed, including children, including people who spoke other languages. You know, these were people from Thailand and Laos and Vietnam who were there to do business who were murdered because they weren't Cambodian. And even if you spoke Chinese, you were murdered. So a lot of my um, ancestors were Chinese, so they were murdered. Half of my family don't even exist anymore. So it was um, to hear the stories from my parent, my dad, about what was going on. It was very traumatic for me because I didn't understand why he would have PTSD sometimes. And he would have vivid dreams of what happened. He would remember bodies laying everywhere. So when that film came out, he didn't even want to watch it because it would trigger trauma. So for certain Cambodian people, it was just something they didn't want to remember. Of course. Um, but for me as a second generation Thai Cambodian American, uh, I had two cultures to learn from both stories. Like my mom's side was more in tune with their, their country being okay, not having to deal with war, where my dad had to become a refugee and go into different countries. And how was he going to be able to survive with his family not speaking English, coming to America for the first time? So he had to learn English in Cambodia at the refugee camps while he, they were fleeing the Khmer Rouge at the time. And there's so many stories he was trying to tell me without having to shed a tear because it was so dramatic for him. Um, but for me, as someone who was, who was born here with parents coming from another country that was filled with murders and war and struggles, I had to learn to understand his point of view. Because here I am too focused on being American you know, going to school like a normal person, having food on the table every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and more. And I never really paid attention to what he was talking about until later in life. When I got older, I was like, okay, so where are you from? Who are you? What's your origin? What are What is our ethnicity? What languages are we supposed to be speaking? Because I went to college and I started learning about Asian American culture. And that's when I was like, wait, weren't you in the Khmer Rouge? So I was, I was like, well... It's interesting how when you let them tell the story, the story has a much more dark, sinister um, mask behind it that I had to slowly unmask from him. And he told me one story about he had a horse and his horse was um, missing one day and he was looking for the horse everywhere. His favorite horse that he rode every single day. And he told me that the Khmer Rouge came with the red scarves and they wore this red scarf called Akroma. Akrama is meant to be a sign of Cambodia, but they, they made it look really dark by wearing a red and black outfit. So he told me that he, they came back, they were eating his horse. Oh. So they ate his horse in front of him. And he was traumatized by that moment. But since that moment happened, he was like, I have to be strong. I have to survive. I have to be You go tough. into survival mode. And you do get that trauma, mm -hmm. you know, when you, you're speaking to people who have gone through these brutal times it is an unmasking because they do want to put it away the human spirit is survival we're just going to keep trying to survive but how do you get over something like that you right. know and i thought it was really interesting one thing that you said and you know of course we'll come back to this i've got so many questions when you're while you're talking you know um but i know that in the majority of wars the people who are first killed are the intelligentsia right. of the community. So it is the teachers, government officials, doctors, anybody who might have an understanding of what's going on and perhaps create an opening for an uprising 
they're going to be murdered first right right and a, a lot of musicians i mean some were spared their lives because they needed singers to sing their anthem their Khmer Rouge anthem they needed singers to survive so they can write these songs and have them sing about certain things like they had someone called Anka which is someone they had to look up to which was like a make-believe person so they every day the kids would get up and they would have to salute to this person that was supposedly the higher power you know but what the Paul Paul regime happening he was the, the mastermind behind everything with all these murders with heartless murders I mean kids and babies were getting thrown off cliffs and mountains and um, you you can't believe that I mean even now if you tie them to the Ukraine it's still happening now mm -hmm. and that's a scary thing about learning about history and also seeing it happen in present time it's it's repetitive because there was also what was going on in Europe mm -hmm. with the Holocaust yes. happening at the same time yes. so these were dual holocausts right, really right. Um, where there were people who were in a community one day and the next they were getting marched away and being stripped of everything that they had and brutalized right. in ways that stay with you forever um, and just really change, you know, the, the whole trajectory of your life. Right. And it's such a to make these comparisons to the Holocaust and to what's happening in the Ukraine and also tying it in with the Khmer Rouge. I feel like there's a. Uh, how are we changing this how are we going to stop genocide from happening around the world i mean we're in america where it's nice safe we have to deal with things too even with the recent school shootings what what we're seeing with everything is that we have to see that everything that's tying together they're massacres these are brutal killings and murders of big groups of people and even here what school doesn't they're not small they're no. still huge but imagine thousands and thousands getting murdered while we sit here and watch you know what what are we going to do that's going to help change and not have this happen anymore and not have to add genocides to future histories because now future children or future generations will have to be like wow there was the ukraine that's being added to the history books now holocaust Khmer Rouge, even what's going on in Africa. The genocides in Africa that are happening around the world. All the time. So for me to learn about my father's survival, being a person that survived the Khmer Rouge and the genocide, I was like, how does it affect you now? And he told me that sometimes he can't sleep, he can't eat, he'll remember screams in his mind, uh, he'll remember crying in terror. And being so young, he was only like 10 years old. I was going to ask, how old was he? Yeah, and having to escape into the jungle. And people should not laugh or um, make fun of those who are eating crickets or insects. Because during that time, there was no food provided. So they had to find a way of surviving, which were eating these grasshoppers who have nutritional values. Even for me personally, when I found it, I was laughing. I thought it was funny, but I stopped laughing once I figured out why. Because when I was in Cambodia for the first time, I was like, oh my god, everyone's eating crickets and insects and grasshoppers. Why, why, why? There's so much food out here. Why are they eating that? Because it was part of their history. They had to learn to eat it, including lizards and snakes and everything that was they could find. Whatever they could find out were walking, they were going to eat it. Because they didn't have any food. Right. That you know? was completely stri stripped of them. Stripped of them. They were provided like rice porridge, but they only have a spoonful. Mm -hmm. Each person. So you were, being, you were basically being starved to death. 
you were supposed to die. You were left to die. How long was he in that camp for? The war ended in 1979, and it started in 1975-ish, I believe. Mm, 75, 76. Yeah, yeah about three there. years. He was in the camp probably a few months before the war ended, because that's when Thailand opened up their borders. And even at that time, the confliction between Thai and Cambodians, it was difficult too. So how many were Thais let in, even with the Lao. And you have to remember, it's not just Cambodians going through the Khmer Rouge, it's Laos too. They live amongst the Cambodian people in Cambodia, amongst the borderline. So other ethnicities were being murdered and killed and brutalized. My god brother, he has experiences with the Khmer Rouge but he is of Thai Lao origin, but they have been through that war. And when Vietnam invaded, they pushed all the Khmer Rouge out. That's what I've learned in history. And it's, even speaking now is such a sensitive topic that even if I misread a certain thing, I will get criticized. Try to really think about the words I'm gonna use because I could say something and could be completely misconstrued. So I would say now if I misconstrue any of the history, please don't take offense to that because I am I wasn't born there. I was I'm second generation American having an opportunity to live in America because my dad had been through the Khmer Rouge and um so anything I say, like I said, should not be misconstrued because I'm still learning. So uh, for me, it's, it's all about listening to the facts and what truly happened. So for me, it's everything my dad told me. That's his experience. Everybody has their own specific experience that they've been through. But the story that my dad had given me is what I'm basing my facts on. And it's what he lived. So that's the only perspective that mm-hmm. he has to mm-hmm. provide you. Um, was it his whole family at the time? I mean, what was life like before the Khmer Rouge? They had a great life. They were, his dad was a lieutenant that ran the village and he had, they had own a farm, they have a business, but they lived in the countryside. So their life was very um, easygoing. They worked hard, came home, they ate a lot of fish. They had a lot of lakes nearby. They had little mini stores. It was nice. It was calm. But when the Khmer Rouge came and destroyed everything, it shook everyone's life apart and he was still very young so he had a bigger brother that died from not specifically murder but from starvation so he had an older brother that passed he had a total of 12 siblings i believe and half of them got murdered and died from illness or sickness and um i think about six is left over now which they all managed to survive the khmer rouge and what about grandparents grandparents i mean so his his mom and his parents survived and they they all came to america so they were at the refugee camp in thailand and from thailand my dad learned to speak english and he learned to speak thai but my grandpa spoke thai already um which is why i'm multi-culture i can speak thai and i learned how to speak my in about six months when i was in cambodia so i was really touching base with myself so what he told me was that from Thailand, he learned English from a little book that he read. So nobody spoke English in his family. So he knew coming to America, he had to learn to speak English. So he can at least hopefully find a job or learn to communicate. Because look, if you're going to a foreign country that you know nothing about, how are, as an immigrant or refugee going to another country, can you imagine the fear 
of not being able to understand the culture and the culture shock. And it, this is the time when America was opening up to the melting pot that we have nowadays. Mm-hmm. We have so much history going on. There's so much growth. Um, but racism still exists. And hopefully we continue to grow from it and learn that every single person has a story, has a history, has a, a way of life their culture, their background, who we are, you know, we because have something to contribute. Yeah, America is a native, native American land. If you weren't, if you're not native American, you're from somewhere. So we need to learn how we respect others in the way that they struggle to get here and understand their story. They contribute such a huge part of America and who we are today. Up next is a clip from episode 32, my talk with my dear friend, Walter McKinley Lewis who is a retired Coast Guard Hospital Corps Senior Chief Petty Officer. In this clip, we talk about his SARS rescues, which also come with a warning because some of them are difficult to listen to due to the description of injuries or the tragic situation that he came upon. So please be aware of that. As well as his time as a medic and doc, on the ice cutter glacier which traveled to antarctica three times while stopping at some of the world's most amazing ports enjoy i was making rink along the way once i made chief there uh you know and they didn't have a lot of sars search and rescue every once in a while they had somebody in their boat i remember one of the sars we pulled there was one of the yachts going in a circle so we went out uh and they dropped me on the boat. Looked down and the veterinary, that was this guy laying down on the stairs and he was twisted. And I knew it had happened. He had fell. And it's pretty obvious his neck was broken. And uh, it was just him. And uh, <laughs> I was like, good thing I knew how to stop a boat. You know? Right. How shocking, right? Yeah, shocking. Did it, did it ever get easier after all of those search and rescues? Because I'm sure you came upon fatalities. Yeah, lots of fatalities. Mm. Yeah, it never got easier. No, rescues, no. These things that you never forget. But also the people that you rescue that you'll never see again, but they hug you, tell you how much they appreciate you. Because let's face it, you're putting your life online for people that you don't know. Mm -hmm. So you were, on on the helicopter ones, you were the guy that went down the winch from the helicopter, right? Yeah, that was me. And we used to do heart attack from cruise ships. I mean, we were going to do this rescue on cruise ship because the guy had a heart attack. And we had to pull off because people were out there taking pictures, flash. All we saw was flashes. Oh, my God. From the ship, cruise yeah. ship. And the pilot had to pull off. We had to, over the bullhorn, to stop it, you know, because they couldn't see because the cruise ship was still moving. So it was us. It was a moving rescue. Wow. But, uh, I mean, if the pilot says, hey, you know, you got to stop, you stop. Right. Exactly. What was the wildest rescue that you ever did? Wildest rescue I ever did was, it was in a storm. It was off the coast here. And these guys, there was like three people in a small boat. They should have never been out there. And it was bad. And I dropped down. I was putting the water and the waves were all over the place. And uh, I almost got taken under by the swells. To believe it or not, out in the middle of the ocean, those swells are so strong. And uh, one of them was, a, I guess, a teenager. I got him first. And because he was with these other two, and that was this guy who was 
floundering. And when I dropped the TJs and put them in the basket, this adult grabbed me from behind and was taking me under. That's terrifying. You know, because he mm-hmm. was freaking out. I had to uh, actually uh, use my elbow to uh, force him yeah, away. Yeah, I cracked. I didn't push him away. I cracked him with my elbow. He had a life jacket on, but because he took me under, and I, you know what happens when you swallow water. Uh, yeah. 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 And I was trying to get this kid out, and uh, I got his wife in, and then him laughed. But that was one of the wildest rescues I did. Wow. In that thing off the coast of Oregon with the uh, those two guys. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and I almost lost my legs on a fishing boat. They got a lot of fishing boats in that story. This one guy had a pump fall on his hand, and it literally just sliced his, on his right hand, his last two fingers were just hanging on. Mm. And we had to do a moving rescue. And what happened was the pilot was dropping me down. And just before I hit the deck, the boat pulled up. Oh, God. And I had my wetsuit on, and the screws in the back scratched my, almost cut my legs off, scratched my rescue. They hit the uh, my wetsuit. If I would have been up a little bit, they would have took my legs off. Oh, my God. And that shook me up. That's for sure. Yeah. But I got the guy, and I cut his fingers off, the, you know, put in some ice. And, uh, matter of fact, they got a chance to sew them back on. So you don't, yeah, you don't, if you get successful rescues, that's what you look at. But the wild ones and stuff like that, they are all wild, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. I've lost, up in Alaska, I've lost guys, friends of mine, guys that were in school with me, friends of mine. I've lost them uh, from rescues, Barren Straits up in Alaska. That's the worst. Uh, I don't know if you looked at the Endless Catch, mm-hmm. but the Coast Guard do a lot of rescues. The Barren Straits is the worst ocean that you can have, other than Drake's Passage. It's all ice moving through the water, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Coasties die up there. Did you ever do any rescues in that area? Uh, they wanted me. I was on my Twilight Tour, which is down in San Diego, my last five years. They needed a chief up there, and they asked me if I wanted to go up there, and I told them, no way. That was about three years ago. <laughs> Good yeah. for you, you know? Yeah. Now, speaking of really cold places, you got to go to Antarctica, right? Yeah, three times, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, that's that's totally good. Oh, Antarctica, as you know, is the coldest place on Earth. Mm-hmm. And I was on an icebreaker, the uh, glacier. I was the cold I was sick bay on the icebreaker. Had two other Korean women, but I was the main doc there. And we take scientists to the Antarctic because the Antarctic is the only neutral site in the world. All people have signed treaties. Mostly all countries have stations there. Ours is called Parma Station, and we would take supplies to the scientists there, and we would basically uh, change the scientists. They're up there for a year or two. We would take them, uh, make a change, go across Drake's Passage, take them to... Uh, Punta Salinas in Chile, that's where they used to catch the plane, dump them there, get supplies, go back across to the ice. And we had to cross the roughest ocean in the world. It, look it up. It's called Drake's Passage, discovered by Sir Francis mm-hmm. Drake. It's where the Atlantic and the Pacific meet. It's rough for two days. All you do is you're in the rack. Uh, there's no hot food because you, the ship is rocking. The waves are up to... Uh, you're talking about 15, 20 foot waves, maybe higher than that. But Drake's Passage is two days. You're rocking and rolling, trying to get across there. And once you hit the ice, it's okay because it's smooth. But uh, it's a mess. Two days, 
and we're up in sick bay because guys are getting cut, guys are in room, in room getting burned. It's it's a two days of hell for us. Yeah, this says here um, June eighteenth, twenty fifteen, is the last stats that they have. At that time, there were twenty thousand sailors had lost their lives there, and its waters hold more than eight hundred shipwrecks. Yes, yeah, that's Drake Passage, all right. But good thing we were on the glacier. We were first shipped to take women to the Antarctic, and she was on the uh, helm. You know where the helm is. That's there in the ship. Mm-hmm. She should have never been yep. on there. And the ship took a big 50-foot roll, and she let go. And she slammed oh. into the iron bulkhead, broke just about every bone in her body. Oh my we had to turn around and go back to Wellington because uh, she was almost, she almost died. And we had to use the helicopter to fly her into Welland because she was that bad. She was pretty tough, but, you know, it was bad. And uh, we got her back to Welland. It's amazing. But, uh, yeah, but Drake's Passage, yeah. It's rough. So you crossed that three times. Three times, yeah. I was only supposed to be on the ship two years, but I was in the twilight too. Like I said, I was going to retire. Then I wanted to retire in San Diego, and I always wanted to come down here to the air station. Mm-hmm. And they told me that because they want to decommission that ship. If I was to stay on there an extra year, they would give me San Diego. Oh. So it was worth it to me. Plus, look at all the ports you pull into. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be on an iceberg. And look where we go. We pulled into Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, Tasmania. Uh, South America, Hawaii. We take our training in Hawaii. That's south. When you go south, you stop there. We stop in Chile. It's a tour, a world tour. I love Fiji. We stop Fiji. And we have friends in New Zealand. When we pull into New Zealand and Australia, it's just so funny. They're used to seeing the glacier there around Christmas time. When we pull in Australia, they have all kinds of people waiting, waiting there on the pier for us. All kinds of people. Wow, the welcome committee. Yeah. And they invite us to their homes and Christmas and everything. And uh, we pull into uh, Sydney. So if you want to see the world, get on an iceberg here. But you got to spend time up in the Antarctica. It's beautiful up there, but it's, like I said, it's the coldest place on Earth. Yeah. We used to play football on the ice. Because in the, in the Antarctic, there's no polar bear. It's only penguins and killer whales. When you break the ice, the killer whales will be following the ship. For breaking the ice and the penguins will be scattering and the killer whales will just jump up on the ice and slide and get the penguins. It's like watching something on the National Geographic, but they would, killer whales would follow the ship and we would stop. Yeah. And uh, you could go down, but you had to worry about White House. When you hear the horn go off, uh, a White House is like when you see in the desert and you see a sandstone coming. Mm-hmm. But that's the way it was in Antarctic. The weather could change in a second and you look and there's a whiteout, and you don't want to get caught in a whiteout because you were just freezing there. This next clip comes from episode 33 with my wonderful friend, Brooke Applegate, who holds a degree in anthropology. She is the current director of education at the Los Angeles Arboretum. She's also an urban tour guide, world traveler, professional whimsy maker. She's just an all around amazing person. And in this episode, we talk about her adventure hiking through the Sapa Mountains of Vietnam. What's made the most lasting impression on you of anywhere that you've traveled? Hmm. That's, again, that's hard. Um, 
I think probably the first thing that comes to mind is when I was in Vietnam, I um, broke off by myself and went to the north to the Sapa Mountains that border China and their Hmong villages in these really, really steep mountains. And they have a lot of rice paddies on the mountains and indigo farms. And you can't go hike through those villages on your own. You have to go with a guide. So I booked a guide through something called Sapa Sisters. It was the only Hmong-owned, women-owned trekking company in the Sapa Mountains because wow. most of them are owned by um, Vietnamese business people or some Chinese. But the Hmong in that region are kind of considered second-class citizens. So they're still living in tribal societies and... The Vietnamese population are the ones in the city, and so the Vietnamese population, they're the ones that can create the businesses to take tourists through these mountains. So the Sapa Sisters, it's Hmong-owned, but also all of their guides are women, the owners are women, and it's intended to give Hmong women an opportunity to make their own living so that they don't have to rely on their husbands. Because my understanding is that they're still expected to be wives and mothers. And so I was paired up with a guide. She was very charming. I don't remember her name at the moment. Um, but she was a very progressive young woman. And as she was walking me through all of these steep mountains, we'd be walking for a while and then we'd come across other tourists that were there with guides from her tribe. And then we'd be walking for a while and then we'd come across other tourists that were there from guides from other tribes and so every time we would pass by somebody she would explain how to tell who was from one tribe and who was from another because I couldn't tell the difference. They were all in very colorful traditional outfits that were not for tourist benefits. That's how they dress. Um, and so she would tell us, yes, in my tribe this is our color scheme, right? In their tribe the women wear pants. In this tribe, you know, and she would talk about how she was considered a real problem in her community because she didn't want to get married and she didn't want to have a child. She wanted to go to school, she wanted to have her own life and it was a disgrace. And then she just casually goes into how her husband kidnapped her. Not that she was bridenapped, oh my God. but how she was bridenapped. And I was like, wait, wait, let's, let's back up. As we're just like, walking through the Hmong mountains, being followed by pigs and wild animals in a rainstorm covered in mud, right? Oh and my she's goodness. just like, yeah, I mean, that's just a lot of the time, that's how it happens here. You're just like, you're kidnapped and then you become someone's bride. And I'm like, I've read about this. I, I learned about this in school, but this is still happening. She was like, yeah. So she told me how it happened to her. And it was somebody from a neighboring tribe. But it was... Educational and humbling for me because I was horrified. But she was just like, Brooke, that's just that's, that's just... how people get married here. Like you just and she was like, It's not like I was locked up and tortured or anything like that. Like they wanted me, like the family wanted me. His parents wanted me, you know? And I was like, Did your family like send out a search party? And she's like, What are you talking about? They were happy that this happened. And so that just like I wasn't reading about this in a book, you know, I was living it as I was walking through mud and it was just, it was intense, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I think, I think she ended up putting up enough of a fight 
that it didn't happen. Or maybe that that guy was from her tribe and she ended up marrying a man that she wanted to for love from a different tribe and having a baby with him. It was like, again, I had stepped through a portal to this other world and just having my bias challenged according to my Western perspective of what's right and wrong, right? Right. That was incredible. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to travel. Yeah. To get a perspective of the world that is not westernized. Um, we're like, oh my God, that's so terrible. I mean, like, you heard me gasp when you said that she was bridenapped. Holy cow. Right. What a horrible thing. But that is cultural over there. That's not something to be horrified by. by. So part of this two-day adventure was you would do homestays, right? So midday, we would stop into somebody's home that knew we were coming. They prepared a meal for us and other travelers. So there was a guide from her tribe that showed up with two other travelers, one woman from New York and one from Boston, all of us about the same age. And so I brought up this concept and they were like, yeah, we've been wondering about that too. So then their guide started talking about it and she was like, oh yeah. And she just like joyfully tells the story about when she was kidnapped by her husband. (laughs) And we're like, what the hell? But she wasn't a rebel about it. She was like, yeah, I had always thought he was kind of cute. So I was kind of excited when he did it. And we're just like, son of a bitch. Like, this is, oh my this is unreal. But she was just giggling about it, you know? Customs. Customs are so different in so many different places. So that's, I mean, I don't know that that's my most memorable, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. The, oh my God, the vegan pho in Vietnam was to die for. Yeah. Again, in the Sapa Mountains, it was our last couple hours, so we were hiking straight up for several hours in the rain out of the canyon. There was just a little shack where we stopped at for lunch, and I'd struggled so much to find vegetarian food in Vietnam that I was like, I'm screwed. Like, there's no way the shack is going to be able to accommodate me. And they just gave me pho with tofu and fresh chilies from, like, behind the shack. Mm. And it was freezing, and we'd been hiking, like, 15 miles a day, and it was just absolutely amazing. Hit the spot. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. Food tastes so much better when you've been hiking a long ways and you're up in the mountains, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. The place that we had stopped into uh, for that lunch the day before, where we intersected with other travelers... And they told us about the bride napping. We found ourselves in this home, and there were like eight of us that were just women about the same age. And um, we could tell that the owner of the house and our two guides, because we got so familiar so quickly, and that doesn't always happen with tour guides. So I could tell that they were feeling very comfortable. So it was almost time for us to leave. So this is probably the most memorable thing that I ate. (laughs) (laughs) The, The owner of the house comes in holding a bowl. And she plops it down on the table, and it's just this, like, off-yellow liquid. And then she gives us each these tiny little, like, bowl cups. And she tells us to scoop it in. So we do, and then she cheers us and says something in her language. And then we knock it back, and it's liquor. It's rice wine. What? That they brew. Oh, my gosh. Was it enough to get drunk off? Oh. I bet it was really strong. So we, we were like, what is this? And they all laughed, and they said, happy juice. And so we all start laughing. It was strong, 
But, like, so we'd, you know, drink some, and then they, there was some custom in terms of, like, using this hand or putting it this place on the table. We were very much feeling it. But every time we were about to be done, they'd tell us to get another one because they're used to it, right? And she lives there. Anyway, I think we had about eight little shots of happy juice <laughs> or happy water. So we were definitely... It was a short hike to where we were staying that night, thankfully. Oh, my but God. that was incredible. Because I don't think they pulled that out for all their tourists. It was not included in our package. That's sure. amazing. That's super cool. Yeah. And as it turned out, I found out later that day that it was uh, International Women's Day, which none of us were thinking about. I remember you posted about yeah. that. Because it's a much bigger deal in other countries than it is in America, so we're all at our homestays that night, and all of our guides ask us if we're settled, if we're good, and they're like, okay, we're going to go. And then we just see all these women walking through the village holding, like, bouquets of flowers and holding hands with other women. And then we just hear, like, these crazy parties down the road. And I asked the owner of the homestay, like, what's going on? And they were like, well, it's International Women's Day. And we were like, yeah, but it's a big deal. Yeah, those were some really beautiful, striking photos, especially... Because of the colorful outfits and the flowers and the mountains, the setting. What a great day to be traveling. Yeah, that was good timing. Up next is a great little clip from episode 38 with my good friend Chris Sullivan, who is a photographer, a writer, philosopher, citizen scientist, a naturalist, and honestly, one of the most interesting and charming people to talk to. I always enjoy talking with him. In this clip, we talk about the writing process, most specifically with journaling. It's got some really great information. So enjoy. So why do you write? Why do I write? Because I'm compelled to. I just have to get it out. I have so many thoughts going through my brain and stories. And I think it's a way for me to connect in a tangible way to the world around me. And one of the things that I really do love about writing and putting things out just for my friends is when it makes them smile or they write me back that they can relate to what I've said, because it makes me realize that people are seeing the same things that I am. It grounds me a little bit and it connects me with other people who are seeing the same things in the world. And, you know, oh yeah, that happened to me. And that is pretty funny, you know, because I do tend to see things in a very humorous light. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason is just that connection, but I am compelled to write. It just has to get out of my head. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I hear you. I've been keeping a daily journal now for 56 years. Wow. Most of it is not worth reading, but some of it is. I enjoy it. So for me to write is most, it's just what I do. I bet a lot of it is worth reading. Did you happen to read my story about the journal that I found? The journal? It's not ringing bells. Did you make it available somewhere? Um, yeah, on Facebook. I was working in automotive for a while. I was not in the parts department, but that's where all of the seating was, you know, so people would forget all kinds of things. And there was no name associated with 95% of the items that were left behind. So they would all go in a drawer, books, magazines, scarves, umbrellas, sunglasses, you name it. 
um, things that people forgot with the hopes, of course, that they would remember and come back. So somebody decided the stuff's been in there forever. Nobody's going to come and claim it. It should go in the trash. And the only thing I fished out of there was this journal. Hmm. And I thought it's probably going to have some nonsense in there. It's somebody's school journal or something. There's going to be algebraic equations or, you know, homework notes or whatever. It was a few days before I got to read it. And it was a man's journal. I don't know who it belonged to. It had been forgotten at least 10 months earlier. I had only been working there for about four months at the time. I looked all over for a name, couldn't find a name. And this guy was very organized. So this is a serious tragedy that he lost this journal. He was very organized and he wrote about having to clean out his garage because he was going to put a shelving system in there. This shelving system was specifically for all of his journals. And he had journals for diet and exercise. He had a journal for his work, and he was certainly an engineer. He worked on some top priority projects for aerospace. So he had a journal for those sorts of things. But then within the work that he was doing, he would come up with thoughts about other things that he wanted to do that were connected to his main work, but were not what he was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So he had journals for that. He had journals for how his marriage was going. He had journals for somebody with a significant illness in the family, tracking the medical, the anecdotes that had been shared about, you know, well, here's what my doctor told me that we should do, or this is unconventional medicine, but it will probably work type of thing. He had a journal for writing implements. And that all sounds very boring. There was additional stuff in there that I don't want to out publicly because I don't want to embarrass anybody. So was this a journal of journals? This was a journal of a lot of different things, but there were huge sections of it that explained what he wanted to do with his journals and what the journals were and how he wanted to organize them and categorize them. Uh, you know, everything had to do with organizing and categorizing and having individual places for his thoughts and having the individual writing implements for these various journals. I, I was astounded. It was probably the most fascinating read that I've ever had the opportunity to check out. And I am very, very, I mean, it, it kind of breaks my heart that he lost this journal. Mm-hmm. It's just a hole in his, you know, I'm sure that this is something that he wrote about in another journal, you know, like maybe a journal of loss. And I know this was a significant loss for him. I don't remember seeing your article about that. And I read pretty much everything you put up on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that one. I'll find it and tag you on it so that you can read it. it. It was, it was pretty interesting, but yeah, you know, journaling is one of those things that I think is really important. Um, I used to journal I journaled a lot when I was younger, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, I lived in a household where people like to go through drawers, and they found my journal, and it had some very private things in there, and that resulted in a lot of drama. I felt very violated because 
that was my journal. Those were my thoughts, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, it stopped me from journaling forever. That was many decades ago. I mean, I was, I was in my late teens at the time. I've tried to start it up again because I know that it is a really helpful practice. Mm -hmm. It's grounding. It also inspires new ideas. It helps you think through various issues. It's a great practice, but I just can't. I probably will do it for one night um, a couple of times a year, and then I just give up. <laughs> hmm. Well, that's probably my main kind of writing these days is journals. One of the funnest things about journals is that there are no rules. Pretty much the only rule really is dating entries. But I have a what I call a one-liner. It's a traditional 365-page journal, and each day I write one line. So if you turn to April 20, you'll see a line that is for 1992, and the next line is for 93, and the next line is for 94. And you, I filled up one of those books where I've got, you know, I can turn to a single page and I can see a line written every day on the same day of the calendar year, uh, appearing on one page. I have a journal that's a, a gratitude journal where I write something briefly that I'm thankful for. I have a journal in which words are prohibited, you know, anything but words, you know, work on a page. I have a, a, and my main journal is the one I've, I've kept daily for so long now, a uh, journal for reading completions. I have a, a journal that I call my tens journal. On each page, I write down a list of 10 things, 10 comedians who make me laugh. 10 encounters with the color red this year, 10 dogs in my life, 10 places I want to visit, 10 places I never want to visit. It's just... <laughs> They're correlated with each other. So it's not just random, 10 random things. They actually have a theme associated with them. Well, the title of the page collects them all. So 10, 10 things I've seen through glass. 10 people I've kissed, 10 hotels I've stayed in. So yeah, each list of 10 are related to one another, but they are they're all different, of course. And what's the purpose of listing 10 things for you? Well, I had a big fat 400-page journal, and I wondered, boy, can I fill it up with 400 lists of 10? And I did. It's, it's just, a, I found it to be fun exploration. And there's a special kind of list keeping that is really fun, and that is lists of 100. A list of 100 things seems long. Like you say, a list of 100 things I remember from 1999. A list of 100 things for which I have to be forgiven. A list of 100 bridges. And you start on this list and you work your way through. And the recommendation for this kind of journal keeping is that you do it in a single sitting. Oh, and you wear, you kind of gets harder after 50 or 60 things. And then suddenly at about 80, some unexpected things pop in there. Like, oh, how in the world did I not think of that? I'll, I'll send you some possible lists of 100 things you can do. And that's uh, one of my favorite kind of journal keepings. Yeah. But I don't do it more than two or three times a year. <laughs> so, yeah, journals are fabulous. And they're mostly for me, they're about exploration. And they're uh, ways for figuring out what I feel about something. Uh, they're wonderful places to do what Lincoln used to call 
hot letters. You say you write a hot letter and you throw it away. So I, a lot of times I'll be angry about something. I'll take it to my journal and write it out without any limitations on what I can say because nobody's going to read it here. Nobody's going to hear it. Mm-hmm. I say whatever I want and I, I learn I know better about what I felt for having done that. And do you go back and read these and see the growth from, say, something that you wrote in 1980, 1990? Yeah, I do go back and read. Sometimes it's embarrassing. (laughs) Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's amusing to see myself muddling over the same old things here 30 years later. Uh It's It's a great resource I've provided to myself. And we're coming up on a clip from episode 40 with my good friend, Tamara Madison, who is a poet and educator. She's an artist and a free spirit. And in this clip, we talk about the writing process, which, like her writing, is quite poetic. Enjoy. Is there a process when you write? Um, Earlier when we were talking about the place that dreams go to commiserate with each other for, you know, all the reasons that they didn't get to come true, you jotted down some notes, but are you writing your poems in one fell swoop? Are you thinking about them or do you just kind of find yourself like, feverishly looking for a pencil and paper to write down your idea and then it's done. Wow. Well, sometimes an idea will come to me. Usually it's at night when I'm getting ready for bed and I'll get an idea and I'll just jot the words down, but I don't bother to turn it into anything because it won't be any good. And I just, in the morning, I'll pick it up, what I wrote, I'll look at it and then maybe try to write a poem about it. But you know, poem is never it never is perfect or seldom, I guess, occasionally it might be perfect right immediately when it comes up, but that's pretty rare. Usually I'll do a lot of different rewrites and it'll sit on my desk for a long time, sit on my desktop as well. And I like to have the paper copy too. It's just easier to really think about it than on the screen. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a long time for the most part. I always start out longhand and I'll it's difficult for me to write. Physically, it's difficult longhand. So I'll write a draft that way, and then I'll move it into the computer right away. But I keep the initial paper because I need to refer to it sometimes. And I think it's a good idea to get your body involved. And so early on, I used to just compose everything on my computer, but I don't think that's really as good a way as to really get your heart involved in it by physically writing. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, I will write things out longhand sometimes when the idea strikes me, but my mistake is going back to reread it. And then I start thinking, oh, I could have used a better word, or that's not exactly what I wanted to say. That's not conveying the idea exactly. And then now I'm scratching things out or I'm erasing or I'm finding a different color pen so that I can distinguish between. Oh, yeah. I I, I don't do it on paper that long. (laughs) Yeah. And as soon as I start doing that, I'm in the office, on the computer, just clacking away. I love the fact that you can type something up and just seamlessly go back and mm-hmm. change it. And I, when I first started working, we had typewriters. And I remember that we had 
It must have been a brother typewriter. I was super excited about it, which, you know, makes me sound completely ancient. And um, I probably am to a lot of people. But yeah, it was an electric typewriter and it had two ribbons. So it was black on top and red on the bottom. And, you know, you hit a key on the keyboard and it that dictated whether you were going to type in red or black. Mm-hmm. But then it had a whole other cartridge, this second ribbon, which was basically dry wide out. Right. And if you made a mistake, you could go back and retype exactly the wrong mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now you could go back and retype over it. In, I mean, like it just took forever, but I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I was the master of that stuff. I worked as a secretary. I worked for a think tank when I was going to school in Washington. And um, we used to do like huge tables. It was a kind of met modeling and stuff like that. So it'd be these huge tables, like on the ultra big paper. And somehow I learned how to like do it, just eyeballing it, how to make a table back before word processing. It was really not that hard once you got used to it. But then they'd send it to whoever was paying for it and they'd say, no, those numbers are all wrong. Change the numbers to this, this, is." Then I get this thing back and I actually learned how to feed it into my IBM Selectric in the right way so that I could actually go back to that line and hit the backspace key and white it out. I don't know. I, I'm still amazed at myself that I could ever do that. Yeah. And then shortly, you know, after a few years, then word processing happened. Oh, yeah. And boy, that made it really easier, a lot easier. But I missed that. I missed making the tables that way and feeling brilliant. Yeah. It's a much more creative process. It's kind of like when I went from driving a stick shift to driving an automatic Mm -hmm. and I didn't know what to do with my clutch foot and (laughs) my shifter hand Mm -hmm. for a long time. I just, I felt like something was missing and I wasn't doing enough. Something was missing. I love a stick shift. Mm -hmm. But I'm never probably ever going to have one again, and neither will you probably. Probably not. You know, they make them less and less, and everything is automatic. I'm on my second Prius, and it's the best car I've ever had. I love it. But I do miss my Mazda 626. Mazda 626. Stick shift. That was nice. Both my kids learned how to drive that. My daughter drives a stick shift now. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first car, (laughs) the first car that I bought, my uncle went with me and I had only driven automatics up to that point. And I kind of fell in love with this little red Pulsar with T-tops and it only came in stick shift. And my uncle insisted that I should buy it. You know, if that's the car you want, that's the one that you should buy. And it's really, really easy. I'd never driven a stick shift and I put down money. I purchased it in Cerritos and I had to drive the jerky dying drive out of the driveway. You know, it was just, um, I think I'd killed the engine about three times trying to get out. But by the time I got home, I knew how to drive that car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll happen. Yeah. What is it? Was it Maya Angelou just drives having to drive a stick shift when she was like eight or something in Mexico? That's this hairy story that she writes. What a story. Back when she was just a little kid. Anyway. Yeah. 
I was wondering if you would mind, do you have a favorite poem? Would you mind reading one? I wouldn't mind reading one. I don't have a favorite though. Um, well, let's see. What is there one that you'd like me to read? I don't have a favorite. Oh, I have so many favorites. I think that the first poem that I ever heard you read was the Sequoia Semper. Oh, Semper Virens from Wild Domestic. Yeah. Okay, and I'll read Sequoia Sempervirens now because it's summer and they're burning. It's awful. Sequoia Sempervirens. Some of these trees have been here since Jesus walked on water. Some of these trees have been here since Vikings drove their boats onto the shores of Newfoundland. Some of these trees were seedlings while the Mayans were worshiping time while the dire wolf and saber-toothed tiger roamed North America. Some of these trees have survived lightning strikes and forest fires. Some of these trees house creatures of the forest floor in burned-out caves at the base of their ruddy trunks. Some of these trees have become living pipes, chimneys hollowed out by fire. They've grown beyond their trauma and focus now on the daily climb the adding on of needle and bark on nature's drive to rise above and see beyond until the day when death will fell them and the earth will add them to its riches. We can be like these trees, pull on the layers of living like fine new garments, house the needy in the caverns of our grief, grow beyond the stories of our scars stretch our branches toward the bristling stars. Coming up next is a clip from episode 44 with Maureen Deering Davis. She is a yoga therapist and teacher of 25 plus years, as well as a life coach. And in this clip, we talk about the mind-body connection to finding awareness and mindfulness to get through life's daily challenges. It has so much great grounding information in it. I hope you enjoy. It's, it's a daily practice, and some days we're better at it than others. You know, my teacher was a gestalt therapist and a yogi, and he called his work a therapy. And I love that. I, I know. It's, he was awesome. And I studied with him for 25 years and it was all on the mind. Okay. So he said one thing to me a long, well, he's passed on, but a long time ago that really stuck with me. And I talk about it a lot in class is like, okay, we are the director and you as a writer would get mm -hmm. this. We are the director of our own play of life. I'm the director of my play. You're the director of yours. Everybody's got their drama to play out. It's a lot of its impulsiveness. Okay. So if we can manage our impulsiveness and realize that we're being impulsive again, which is awareness, but realizing like how often do we, like you say, jump into complaining or jump into a situation that you have no business being in. Mm -hmm. Like, because you're impulsive, you're jumping in like, oh, I'm going to put my two cents in just, just stopping for a moment. And there is an inner voice that when you start to tap into that, you'll hear it and you'll say to yourself, oh, just, just take a moment, a moment, just take a moment and assess. 
Can I benefit from this? Am I needed here? Is this something that I need to participate in? 99% of the time, the answer is no, but we don't take that time. And then we jump in and now we're caught up in somebody else's scene or act. And then how many times does it backfire or we get in over our heads knowing full well, we should not have been there. And now we can't gracefully exit. So you have to one recognize like, is this where I need to be? Um, And if you're not needing to be there, just send a good wish to the situation and walk away. It doesn't mean that you're not seeing it, but it's, it's a daily practice. The fact that you just caught yourself and we're able to say, hey, you guys, I'm sorry, like that was, you know, inappropriate or whatever. That's, that's number one, you caught yourself. Mm-hmm. So then you just let it go because it's done and over. Um, complaining, I think, is just because we're all energetic beings. It's just a trapped energy that needs to express itself. And the only way in that moment that you're conditioned to express that energy is by putting words to it. You know, being married to an Indian man, it's very interesting because we as Westerners, we talk so much Mm -hmm. about nothing. It's true. You know, we have so much to say about something so small. We use so many words, whereas they just ask for what they want purely and simply. Um, My experience, they see the good in everything. They try to keep their energy positive. They send good wishes to people who annoy them. They see the synchronicities in life, that everything's been a blessing, that look, at this was God's wish, or Ganesh cleared the obstacles for us. And because there's this sense of gratitude, there's this sense of humility. And we don't have that. We're not a culture that embraces that. We don't, because I feel like we, really want to always have the upper hand we've really created a culture that values um being at the top you know that values Mm -hmm. being a manager that values being basically king of whatever empire (laughs) you you get Mm -hmm. to command and or queen and when you just said they send good wishes to those that have wronged them I thought wow, what a blissful way to think because we do collect points. I mean, we're a scorekeeping society. We do keep the score even when we think that we don't. And I think that really traps us. You know, if you have to keep score, all of a sudden you've accepted that role and that keeps you from pursuing happiness or contentment or meaning or purpose. You know, I always say that contentment or happiness that people are searching for, it comes from having meaning and purpose in life. And if your purpose is just to keep score, you're not going to find contentment. That's your ego. And that's what people don't get, you know. So in the tradition, the philosophy of yoga, there's a lot of books, you know, there's the Bhagavad Gita, and there's the Upanishads and all that. Well, the reason that the Indians send best wishes or whatever is like, there's three types of karma. So there's karma that you're born coming in, if you believe in reincarnation, you come in, like to this life, having to maybe work through some past life karmas. But when you come into the world, you're coming in as a pure soul, okay? 
And actually, this Mm -hmm. is kind of mind blowing. But you know, that's why a baby's head is soft at the crown chakra, because they are still that connected to the divine. So they are divine Mm -hmm. beings, they are still God like beings, because they're pure, their minds are pure, like everything's new to them, they have a clear slate. So I like no, it's it's really powerful when you see it from that perspective. And Mm-hmm. So then what what happens? The parental figures impart all their stuff on the child. And then the child has its own view of the world. And then you've got society. And next thing you know, like the first four years, the child is already like programmed to have their system set up, their, their mental system. And so when we go through life, there's another phase of karma where you make mistakes knowing and unknowingly. So sometimes we make with snakes and we or we do negative things and we kind of know we're doing them, but we kind of ebb and flow like the Leela, right? We go, oh, okay, like I did that. But then we do good things too, you know, that kind of balance that scale. And then the end goal is to clear up those karmas so we become swatic again. So when we're born, we're swatic. We're pure beings. When we leave the body, we want to become swatic. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of want to enter back into that place. And there's swatic beings. And then a lot of us live in like the rajasic realm, which is like, we do some bad things, we do some good things. That's human nature. And then there are some people that just are tamasic, meaning heavy, they're negative, they have really bad energy. And that's just their karma in this lifetime. Now, will they get out of it? Well, their choices will determine that. But most of the time, the end goal is to get back to being spotic. So having been a end of life coach as well and witnessing death and being like mm-hmm. a death doula in the teachings of yoga which i teach is like a lot of people are 50 and up and i'm like what do you want to take to your exit with you cuz what you said is when we cling and hold on to this stuff only we are causing that suffering right. that's a buddhist tradition right mm-hmm. so you're holding on to the negativity. You're the one who's suffering. So why do you want to hold on to it? It's not serving you. So that's why the Indians will just send a good wish because one, the deed has been done. If they hold on to the negative feelings around that, then they're the ones who are creating negative karma for themselves. And then they're imposing suffering and pain. So only you can release yourself from that. Nobody else can. Right. Right. And if you're holding on to that negativity and pain, you're also causing that in oh, others. Oh, totally. Right. Hurt people hurt people. Yes. Um, how does somebody who leans more towards, um, I'm trying to use these terms right, and I don't know if I am, but somebody who leans more towards being swatic deal with people who are more tamasic. Uh Was that the right Uh word? Um, Because, you know, we're all interacting with each other. And as much as you want to, at least I know that this is the way that I view the world is, you know, I just kind of want to embrace everybody. 
there are personalities that cause friction uh-huh. and that happens to everyone. So how do Swadic people deal with Tomasic people? And then do Swadic people upset Tomasic people? How do they deal with the Swadic people? Well, I think, I think to answer your question, um, how do we get along? I guess. Yeah. Well, one, I think when you understand who they are and that sometimes people can't help it, you know, this works for me, um, because it's a mindset, right? Mm-hmm. When I see people who are maybe Tomasic and have negativity and have, are very narrow minded, they're not inclusive. They're just, they're like have blinders on. I I just look at them and one, I have compassion for them. Two, I realize that they can't help it. They are a product of their environment and their upbringing. And they're not, they're ignorant in their evolution. And that's not meaning they're stupid. They're just, they don't know any different. And some people don't want to know different. My dad was a great example. Like he was hard. He was not open to any of this kind of talk, very closed with his feelings and kind of at times a jerk. And the only way that I could learn to be with him was to understand and have compassion for one. He wasn't interested in growing as a soul. And I just would say, okay, well, you're just going to have to come back and do this all over again. And that's your issue, not mine. But in the meantime, I just would have to also pick and choose times that I had enough energy to deal with him so that I wasn't drawn into his Tomasic negative energy. Um, or react to it more than anything, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like get my feelings hurt, finding out feeling that he was too abrasive. You know, he just would say things that were mean, but he didn't mean them. It's just who he was. So I think when you have an understanding of who those people are, and then try to show them through your actions, be a teacher to them. Like be a teacher to the people who are negative around you by showing up. Yeah. And it can be really easy to absorb that negative energy into yourself, you know, and I know that that's happened to me on occasion where, you know, somebody just really upset me and I have gotten so much better at it as I get older to kind of put a divide between my energy and other people's energies when, you know, they're threatening to bring me down or to upset me. I don't succeed every single time, but I do catch myself asking the same question. You know, why did that person make me feel like that? Like, what what about that person? Because it's not the person. Nobody can ever make you Correct. feel. Um, who was it? Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, right? Nobody can ever make you feel like a victim, I think was her saying. I'm going to have to look that up. But um, it's a really great saying that she had about that. It's within you accepting it, you know, accepting the negativity from somebody else. But one of the things that I really liked about what you said is building that empathy. I think that, again, because we're a scorekeeping society, and because we're always trying to get to the top, Mm-hmm. we don't build up enough empathy within us for, for other people. And I think when you've been taken advantage of mm-hmm. <laughs> by others, you tend to hold back on mm-hmm. that empathy a mm-hmm. lot too. It's kind of um, 
that's kind of a Leela, right? How much empathy you're going to put out and how much oh, yeah. you're going to hang on to sometimes. Well, and I think that when you've been taken advantage of or you've been hurt deeply, I mean, I've had some pretty significant deceits and just devastating hurts, right? My true nature from the time I was little was I just loved everybody, you know, and I got hurt because of that because I never saw like people like I never could figure out why people did what they did. And it caused me a lot of pain and suffering. And so I realize now that I have to draw really good boundaries. So drawing really good boundaries is important. And then it's always a process like each disappointment and each hurt you have to process to get over it and um do you truly ever get over it 100 percent uh there's always work to do but again if you're holding on to it then again you're the one who's suffering but everybody who we have a response to i feel it's we have to ask ourselves like what is it about them that's triggering me you know and sometimes it could be we are exactly alike like people just they used to think that I was bitchy and because I came from a pretty well-known family back east that I was a rich bitch but actually in reality I was like painfully shy and so this girl could be painfully shy and I'm projecting out to her just in the simplest terms that she's whatever and it could be completely the opposite and she's just not good at connecting with people so I'm not going to let her upset my day it's like come on we're all living together here like why am I starting my day off like this like silly me. So now I don't care. And I'm flipping the script. So I'm changing it because in yoga too, we always cultivate the opposites. So if you want to turn a negative into a positive, you have to flip it into a positive. And it just makes it for a more harmonious way of being. And over time, maybe she'll switch. If she doesn't, okay, I did my best. I'm not responsible for the outcome. Yeah. It's not my job. It's not my job. I say that a lot. That's one of my, you know, it's not my job to change people. No. Up next is a clip from episode 47 with my good friend, Stephen J. Morris, who is the co-founder of the band Benedict Arnold and the Traders. He's also a political commentator, music aficionado, and a podcaster himself. In this clip, we talk about his bands and there's a lot of talk about music I can never get enough rock and roll. I don't know about you, but this is a fun one. So enjoy. I'll tell you how it all started. I was the regional director of Rock Against Racism, which was an organization from England. Now, you ask what it was? Mm -hmm. Uh, Eric Clapton, 1978, said a very racist thing on uh, stage. Essentially what he said, we should get all the Pakistanis out of England and send them back. Oh, my God. He said this during a concert. And the people were pissed off. And so they decided to do an organization called Rock Against Racism. And they used to have free concerts. The Clash used to play. I mean, all sorts of bands. I love The Clash. Yeah. Excellent. I I mean, truly excellent inspired musicians. Truly Cockney working class. So uh, I was turned on by this. I, I bought an album by Tom Robinson called Light in the Darkness. And it had the Rock Against Racism logo. 
So I wrote the, gave you an address, and I wrote to it. And they sent me a newspaper. And I started my own chapter in Los Angeles in 1979. I even had a concert at MacArthur Park. Free concert. Oh, wow. Yeah, free concert. 500 people showed up. Wow, nice. Yeah. It's a good showing. It was going really well until the cops came up. The chief says, you'll have to shut it down, son. I said, why? Your permit says only till 3 o'clock. And there was about 800 people. More, more, more. I had to shut it down, which was the hardest thing I ever had to do. Wow. I thought we were going to have a riot or something. So anyway, that organization went on. And uh, I decided that we should start a band that represents Rock Against Racism. And we used to meet at Plumber Park in a room in a recreation center. One of the guys said, uh, I asked, what, what am I going to name my band? And then he was telling me about Batman. Remember that show, Batman? Do, 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 do. They had a fictional band on it called Benedict Arnold and the Traitors. The whole band. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. So we just. This is the one that would come on every day. Yeah. Like after school. Right. So they had a band called Benedict Arnold, and, and the whole purpose of the band was to brainwash kids into crime. So I said, <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. That's where we got the name. Then I did some research years later. There was a band in 65 called Benedict Arnold and the Traders. They were a surf band from Brooklyn. So uh, we went on, and 1979, uh, there was a hostage situation. A couple students, Iranian students, took some American diplomats and held them hostage. And uh, all of a sudden, on the radio, the rock stations were all these novelty songs. Like, they took, they would take songs and change the words to them, like, Barbara Ann by the Beach Boys. They changed it to bomb, 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 Iran. Mm. And uh, then on the campuses, students were attacking Iranian students. That was it for me. That was pure racism. So I took my notebook and wrote a song called Fuck the Hostages. And uh, it stayed. It stayed in my notebook for a year. And then I introduced it to the band. And I had to change it to Kill the Hostages. And the song did really well in the underground. The first uh, station it did it was KPFK at midnight. The second was Rodney on the Rock. He played it. And uh, before I know it, the whole country was hearing it. That's what I'm going to be known for for the rest of my life, was that song. I even got reviewed in the Yippie paper, a big one-page review. Wow. But then we put out our second EP, and I used to send it to these punk zines, fanzines, and the first the first review, the name of the EP was No More Heroes or Gods. The first thing the critic says, disappointment, because we were experimenting with other type of music. I did a ska song called White Boy Singing Ska. They didn't like it. So then... Uh, that was the end of the Traders. Hmm. A lot of adventure. Did you have a lot of concerts? The best one we ever did was in Pomona. We went to this youth center and we were playing in this, I don't know, it was a, it looked like one of those places where they used to sell plumbing supplies. That's how big it was. So we, uh, we started to play and all of a sudden a shower spit comes on us. We were getting spat on. I'm surprised I didn't get a disease after that. Oh, my. And then uh, the slam dancing. But there was only 65 kids there. (laughs) 
Now, were they spitting on you on because you. they didn't like you, or no. was that a thing? That was a was thing. that like instead of clapping, you spit? Yeah, that was a punk thing. <laughs> That's so gross. It is. I had to take a oh shower. Then my guitar player was drunk, and I had to, he was driving me home. Oh my gosh! And you know, oh. I'm not a big uh, believer in God, but I was praying I get home all right. Yeah. <laughs> All the Christians come out in the foxholes, right? Yeah. Or something like that. Everybody in a foxhole's a Christian. <laughs> um yeah. <laughs> Did you play any like multi group concerts, like, you know, a festival or yes. anything like that? After the traders disbanded in eighty two, we became the antinomians. The antinomians. And uh, that was a Christian sect in the 17th century who believed that they were anti-government, but they think the only ruler of the world was God, so man's rules couldn't apply to them. So it was sort of like an anarchist uh, cult, mm-hmm. the antinomians. So we play, and nobody knew how to pronounce it. Nobody knew what, what that meant. Yeah, I'd never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, antinomians means against the law in Latin. So we we became the hundredth monkey, and I didn't choose that name, but that was, I kind of like that name. Is that was it a punk band as well? No, it was a, it was a neo psychedelic band, otherwise known as grunge. Grunge, the hundredth monkey. Yeah, yeah, I like that better because I'm thinking antinomians, and I'm thinking nomenclature, something like anti-name a hundredth monkey there's a more logical connection to it for more people right yeah like i have a story about the antinomians we went to pomona again and we were playing i grew out my hair because after watching black flag they grew their hair long so i decided to grow my hair long and we look like bikers we look like bikers (laughs) so we played and all these skinheads show up and they're giving me the finger and they, fuck you, kick your fucking ass, you fucking white hippie. So uh, I was yelling back at him. Oh, no. <laughs> and my bass player came and he stood by me to protect me. You know who that bass player was? Who? Pamela's brother. Oh, wow. He was very protective over me. <laughs> oh. That's how I met Pamela, by the way. Uh, anyway. Wow, really? Yeah, he was. So would she come to your concerts? Yeah, I I first met her in the Hundred Monkey when we played uh, the Ice House in Pasadena. Uh huh. So yeah, I really loved that band because we could have freedom, creative freedom. That was the experimental band, and I never knew that we were doing grunge. <laughs> I never knew that. Wow. Yeah. So. I know you recently, speaking of grunge, you recently posted about the Doors being the original grunge band or... Uh, Goth. Goth. Yeah. If you heard their first album, it sounds very negative. It's just dark. It's a dark album. Yeah, I think they had a lot. Even their more popular songs had a very deep, bassy, kind of morose sound to it they, that they never really got away from yeah yeah but uh the soft parade they tried to go commercial there ah, 
I saw the doors rehearsed too. Mm-hmm. When I was going to Fairfax, I used to get these jobs, temporary jobs. And I was going down Santa Monica and I came across this building and I looked and I heard this music playing and I looked in and there was Ray Mazurik sitting there and the rest of the doors. I go, whoa, Jim wasn't there. Then above me, the door opened on the staircase. It was Jim Morrison. Wow. He looked at me, smiled, then went back in his room. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I still have that picture in my mind. See? That's cool. Yeah, well, I mean, local band right during that time period where, you know, they were transitioning to become really big. Were they big at that time yet? Yes, they were. They were. A lot of people, after they put out that soft parade album, people were saying, sell out. Yeah, everybody was a critic. Yeah, yeah, I think that's unfortunate. I mean, there are some bands, you know, it's funny because I have this very long story that I'm not going to share right now, but I purchased, on a joke, my friend and I purchased tickets to go see an artist that I would never see. And so I told Sophie, you know, we're getting really close to this concert because we we got these tickets for her 90-year-old mom. We thought it would be hilarious. And um, Sophie and I started listening to this artist's music, and it was awful. I just, I, I go, Sophie, I don't think I can sit through two hours or an hour and a half, whatever it might be, of this person's music. I thought it was listenable, and it's just Clearly other people like it, and so I'm not going to mention who it is right now, but I hated it. Hated it. (laughs) Hurt my ears. (laughs) It hurt my ears. So I ran into my girlfriend the other day, and I said, have you listened to this person? And she goes, oh, I had to shut it off, or I was going to talk myself out of going to the concert, and I didn't want to do that to my mom. And then we started talking about this 90-year-old lady going to this crazy concert, and so we just sold the tickets. I put them back up for resale and I was really happy to to sell them. But yeah, you know, I mean, here I am being a critic and, you know, it's kind of like my friend who is a sommelier and I called him up one day because I saw some new, new wine that I wanted to taste. And he said, Sil, here's the thing. If it tastes good to you, it's the right wine. And I think it's kind of the same thing with music. If it sounds good to you, it's the right music. Um, but people do want to be critical of things that don't sound right to them or don't taste right to them. That's an interesting observation because every music I love now, I hated it at first. The Ramones. Mm-hmm. I bought their first album and I was pissed off. Really? Where's the leak? What? What is this shit? <laughs> Little did I know... <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. And I use the same chord progressions. Wow, really? But, yeah, I couldn't stand the Sex Pistols. Now I love them. Uh, I think there's a lot of bands I had love at first sight. There was, like the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And they've lasted through the years, the Rolling Stones. You yeah. know, their music still sounds good. It didn't age like, you know, again, going back to the Doors. When I hear the Doors, I hear 1960s. That's right. Um, 
you know, it doesn't have that currency value, that relevancy to it any longer. I mean, it's relevant in terms of if I want to get into a 1960s mood. But a lot of times when I have love at first sight or at first listen for a band, it peters out pretty quickly. You know, I, I listen to the song maybe 10 or 12 times and that's it. I'm ready to move on. But I think there's some bands, like you said, with the Ramones and with the Sex Pistols that you don't like when you first hear. And then the understanding clicks in because there's perhaps a complexity level to that music Mm -hmm. that you didn't understand at first and now you do and so it stays with you and you actually kind of grow the the love of that band over time. That's right. Everybody's different. You know, I hate to Mm -hmm. use that cliche, but it's true. That makes you a unique person. Exactly. This last clip is from episode 49 with Dr. Stacy Betancourt, a lifelong friend of mine since childhood. She's also a life coach, a divorce arbitrator, mediator, a trauma coach, a language arts teacher. And um, in this clip, we are talking about overcoming traumas and recovering from them with confidence, deep inner strength, and an optimistic focus on the future enjoy. You just mentioned your practice and and earlier you mentioned your dissertation and getting your degree. There was a big break in between there because, you know, for the listeners, I should mention that we went through school together. So we've basically known each other, at least from from junior high forward, because I don't think we went to the same elementary schools, but then Stacy and I were in so many classes (laughs) through high school. We were. So there was a big break from college. It took you a while to get to the point where you wanted to get a doctorate. So what was the impetus behind that? Well, first of all, I've, I've got to say, because my junior high and high school years were so tumultuous, I want to thank you for always being kind to me. Oh, that means a you lot. You were always very kind. You were always very kind to me, where not many people were. Mm. and. I, you know, I've heard from some of our male students, of course, high school, we're all stupid, but (laughs) very much so. (laughs) (laughs) So many of them expressed that they thought I was, that they thought I was pretty and they thought I was a a fun person and they thought all these things. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? I grew up, you know, and it wasn't their responsibility, but, you know, I felt very unvalued. And part of that was my upbringing, but, you know, part of it was, you know, the environment. So I want to thank you for for always being very kind to me, Mm. Um, always saying hi, always, you know, know, just being there. You know, I I never forgot that. So I appreciate that. That makes me feel so good. I was just talking, you know, just a few days ago about how mean I was to a particular girl that we went to junior high school with, I was just like terribly mean to her because the cool kids, you know, in quotation marks, the cool kids were mean to her and I wanted to be part of the cool kids group. So I was mean to her and she didn't deserve any of this meanness. Um, But I 
I uh, went out of my way to be mean to her one day and the PE teacher, gosh, I don't remember. We had a male PE teacher in junior high school with dark hair. I don't remember his name. I'll have to think about it. He walked over to me and he happened to be nearby and he walked over and he looked at me and he goes, Oh no, Silk. And I kind of, I was surprised that he was right there and he goes, he goes, you don't have to do that. You're better than that. And it really made me mindful of what I was doing and so deeply ashamed. And I remember seeing this look on the girl's face and, you know, there's like certain people where you grow up, you become a parent, you become an adult, you understand empathy better and you wish, at least I do, you know, I wish I could go back and find out where this girl is now so that I can apologize to her um, for whatever amount of time, you know, to me, it was just a couple of weeks of me being mean. I never ended up with the cool kids because they ended up treating me like they treated that girl. Um, So, you know, I guess that's karma in the end. To me, it's, you know, a couple of weeks, but to her, it was just unbearably long time, I'm sure, just to have one more person being mean. So, you know, to be honest, I, it makes me feel so good to hear that I was kinder than my memory imagines that I was, you know, because I always just think back to that moment. And I'm like, I was probably like that all the way through high school and all through junior high school. Like you said, we're, we're all so dumb at that stage. We don't know how to control our hormones that are coming in. We're growing up, you know, our brains are literally going through this metamorphic process. We're trying to deal with our peers keeping our grades in school at a level where they're supposed to be. And just, there's a lot that's being thrown at us. They are tumultuous. Um, So I'm glad that there was some kindness within me that, that um, made a difference. It's, it's wonderful to hear that. Well, definitely. Um, And as far as my academic journey, it's kind of funny. I did not go to school. I tried very hard to avoid going to school. Um, the year I was graduating, my mother said that I was not smart enough. Just get a job, go get a mall job because I was going to get married early and have children. Mm. And I did get married at 23. In fact, days after my 23rd birthday. But yet, you know, the children never happened. And actually, in retrospect, I'm glad because I would have made a lot of mistakes. I would have been equally abusive. The cycle would have been bad. So I, I'm glad I was not able to have children. I think that's where I believe in a higher power knows better than we do. Mm-hmm. So whatever higher power you subscribe to, um, believe in, I think they really know what's going on. Uh, for me, I went to my father after that. My older brother's adopted. I was my father's only child that he created with my mother. And he looked at me and it was in one of my thinner moment and I had the long blonde beachy hair and he touched my hand and he said oh sweetheart it's a good thing you're cute you're just not smart enough oh that hurts and that was like wow I was my father's only child I mean my brother is his son no question but I was created by this man 
And he didn't even tell me I was beautiful. I was cute. Mm. And that carried me. And then, you know, other comments about four more years, four more years. And I took a lot of certification classes. I mean, if I could tell you what I'm certified in, you'd crack up. And we don't have enough time. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, I kept trying to avoid college. So I would take a certification class because four more years, four more years. And finally, one day I caught myself saying this to someone. I was almost 35 years old. And I realized, oh, my God, how many sets of four years have passed and how many more am I going to let pass? Early on, I got a job at a jewelry store, which gave me a false sense of security. At 19, I had credit cards. I ordered my first car, ordered it. Oh, my God. Uh, talk about a rush. I ordered every piece of that car. And I didn't realize the difference between having a career and having a job. Right. And so, you know, when I finally realized, oh my God, what happened is I was working for a major hotel chain and I was up for a very large position. And I used to answer this executive's complaint mail. And I was in Salt Lake City. They were in Virginia, yet people thought I sat outside their door. And I was commended, got awards. And when it came down to it, they said, we like her. She's an industrious worker. She's trustworthy. She's fantastic with conflict resolution. But we can't pay her this without a college degree. Mm -hmm. We just can't. So someone who did not know the company ended up not staying very long because they didn't understand the core values of the company it didn't work out. But at that point, I realized I need to go to school. So I went to school, I started going to school for business, realized this was not in my heart. And at 35, I walked into Citrus College, very humble, took my placement test and started my journey. The arrangement in the household was school was my full time job, I was to get at least a B average and finish in four years. Well, I almost had an A average, finished on time, including my credential, did it all in four and a half years with no college background. Wow. And then got a job in education, became a teacher, and teachers started losing their jobs. Well, I lost my job. I was laid off. I jumped into a master's degree, finished the master's degree, got rehired, could not afford the student loan. <laughs> So I said, well, I'll just go for my doctorate. <laughs> and now I'm a PhD. And it's funny now because I've reached the other side of it where I go back to getting certifications because I'm so overqualified in so many facets of my life, you know, adding arbitration mediation. But what's ironic in all of this is I never knew I was smart. Neither of my parents believed in me. When I would try to do my homework as a student in high school, I was accused of hiding in my room and hiding from my responsibilities. And I still managed B's and C's. In college, I was a straight A student all the way through. Um, most of the time, I mean, A's and B's complete because you couldn't do anything or move on unless you had A's or B's. And I did it. And then my master's degree, I had a 4.2. It 
in my PhD, I had a 4.0. And I realized, my God, I was the kid who wasn't supposed to go anywhere. I was not smart enough. I was just cute. Mm -hmm. That dialogue kept playing in your head. It did. It, It did. And I finally had to realize, okay, I just studied human behavior. I studied two quarters of eating disorders and generational trauma and all of these things. And I realized this was me, my parents and their inhibitions. My father was in the military for six years and he never got past a P2 in the Navy. He had dreams, but he didn't know how to go after them. So he turned to alcohol and died of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. My mother always wanted what was on everybody else's plate. And that's both figuratively and literally. If you ordered something from a restaurant and she ordered something else, she would try to bring her fork over to your side. (laughs) And her Alzheimer's and dementia was caused by environmental abuse that she did to herself. And I still have problems because of the damage I caused my body. But I'm getting better and my body is getting stronger. So I am undoing the damage. Mm. And I'm, you know, it's that kind of thing. I'm so much stronger than both of my parents. I see so much more that I can do for others. And in the meantime, my fulfillment that comes with it is such a win-win for everybody. And and that's what I want to do. It's, it's truly time for me. And, you know, that's the thing is that I have finally found who I'm supposed to be. I hope that you enjoyed that medley of episodes from some of the extraordinary people that I am honored and delighted to call my friends. This episode of Clips, along with the one published last week, are jam-packed with amazing talks And they're a great way to get an idea of what the Queen Trail podcast is about. Please share these weekly extraordinary stories. Also, check the show notes for links to each episode so that you can listen to them in their entirety. And also, keep sending your questions and suggestions. I do love reading them. Please take a moment to rate this episode. Your rating moves this podcast closer to the top of searches so my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming company of friends talks with you so be sure to follow me on the social medias and the dot com all at the queen trail podcast that's t-h-e-q-u-a-i-n-t-r-e-l-l-e podcast i am still annan the queen trail and until next time i wish you passion grace adventure friendship elegance and